Walk, believe, or walk, Daniel. Walk, believe, or walk, Daniel. Walk, tell you walk, Daniel. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Finneran's Wake. The purpose of this segment is, once a week, at the end of each week, to recapitulate the three most important news stories of the past seven days. The three most consequential events to have happened in America and abroad, of which, no matter how busy you are, you'll want to be apprised. It's my humble aim to bring that awareness to you as concisely, honestly, and eloquently as I can. I know how limited and precious your time is, and just how quickly it disappears. I also know how much there is to know these days, and the difficulty in finding a dispassionate and reliable source from whom to get good information. My goal is to give you this information, and to leave you just a bit more enlightened than you were when you came. Today, we'll cover the following three items. First, a California man threatens to kill Justice Kavanaugh. Second, January 6th goes prime time. And third, gun legislation moves through the House and will be stymied by the Senate. From the top, a California man threatens to kill Justice Kavanaugh. In the small hours of Wednesday morning, about five minutes past one, a man dressed in black exited a taxicab in front of the private residence of Justice Brett Kavanaugh, whom President Trump nominated and the Senate raised to the Supreme Court not quite four years ago. The man, a young Californian identified as Nicholas John Roski, arrived at the Justice's Maryland home with murderous intent. His stated purpose, we now know, was first to kill Brett Kavanaugh, with whom... Over matters political and jurisprudential, the 26-year-old seems rather fiercely to have disagreed before committing a similar act of violence on himself. Roski, fancying himself something of a martyr, a progressive hero to whom future peons might be sung, devised a plan whose execution would have changed the entire course of American history. It started simply enough. He packed a suitcase and a backpack, traversed the country, and hailed a local cab, by which he was swiftly brought, under the concealment of night, to Gavinaugh's front door. It's unclear if he flew or drove across the country. Either way, he committed a crime by crossing state lines with his weapon. But how, you might ask, did he ascertain Kavanaugh's home address in the first place? It was publicized a few months ago by the left-wing activist group Ruth Sent Us, Ruth being a reference to the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, whom, in the autumn of 2019, Justice Amy Coney Barrett replaced. Equipped with tools with which to force his entry, Roski stepped out of the vehicle and into the night. His destination, the home of Kavanaugh, in which not only the conservative justice, but his wife and two daughters slept, was before him. But 
By some good fortune, some happy twist of fate, things took a turn. No sooner did Roski pay his fare and unload his baggage than he noticed, supervising the dark street, two United States deputy marshals. Unnerved by their presence, Roski briskly changed his plans. In fact, by the grace of God, he aborted them altogether. According to the affidavit, by which the harrowing events of that morning have been recorded, he abandoned the homicide and the suicide, and, instead, called the police. To the emergency dispatcher, Roski identified himself, disclosed his purpose, and confessed his intent. Soon thereafter, he was detained by the police, by whom the contents of his backpack and suitcase were searched. In them, they found, quote, a black tactical chest rig and tactical knife, a Glock 17 pistol with two magazines and ammunition, pepper spray, zip ties, a hammer, screwdriver, nail punch, crowbar, pistol light, duct tape, hiking boots, and other items, end quote. A panoply fit for a felon. According to the affidavit, quote, Roski purchased the Glock, pistol, and other items for the purpose of breaking into the Justice's residence and killing the Justice as well as himself. His motivation? Politics. What else? Roski isn't, by all available evidence, a member of the constitutional right for conservatism, for originalism, for textualism, and for those brazen enough to adjudicate in their name, he seems not to have nourished a very strong affinity. He appears, rather, to have been one of many people mobilized by the unlawful and still unpunished leak of the forthcoming Supreme Court decision on Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health. This case, for whose formal release the country still waits an inexplicable delay given the circumstances, will strike down the 1973 decision of Roe v. Wade. When it does, the issue of abortion will be returned to the states, into the purview of whose legislatures the matter will then fall. In their approach to the issue, some states, like New York and the would-be killer's own California, will be more permissive and lenient. Others, like Texas, Mississippi, and Florida, will be more constrained. Most importantly, though, the Constitution will be spared any further abuse. How, you might ask, did we get to the point, in a country renowned for its civility, neighborliness, decency, and enlightenment, at which an assailant is finding his way to the private residence of a duly nominated and lawfully confirmed public official, on whom he intends to carry out an unspeakable act of violence. Well, many factors are at play. In the wake of the leak, our group of left-wing activists, Ruth sent us, publicized the private addresses of six Supreme Court justices, those putatively of a conservative stripe. Equipped with this knowledge, abortion activists organized and staged a series of protests outside the justices' homes, forcing at least one of them, Justice Samuel Alito, 
by whom the decision of Dobbs vs. Jackson Women's Health was penned, to flee in search of protection. About this disturbing development, this bold affront to justice, this effort to intimidate conservative members of the court, the White House was by and large unconcerned. In response to the activists protesting outside the homes of public servants, Jen Psaki, the former press secretary to Joe Biden, breezily said, quote, I know there's an outrage right now, I guess, about protests that have been peaceful to date, and we certainly do continue to encourage that outside judges' homes, and that's the president's position, end quote. To be fair, she highlighted, to date, the protest's peacefulness, in which, until they're not so peaceful, we can all take solace. But to make it the official position of the executive branch that demonstrations outside the private homes of select members of the judicial branch are not just acceptable as a matter of First Amendment protections, but encouraged by this White House is insane. It's one thing to protest outside the Supreme Court. Indeed, scarce a day passes on which one group or another isn't seeking redress for some grievance outside its doors. It's quite another thing to molest the justices at their homes after hours, and for the executive branch actively to encourage this kind of uncivil harassment. In what possible way does this accord with our founding philosophy? To have one branch of government actively encouraging citizens to intimidate the other. This is tyrannical behavior, the tyranny of the executive, and it's unbecoming of a republic predicated on the idea that there are three co-equal branches between which there's supposed to be a high level of respect. Saki's response, I think we all agree, was poor. Worse was that of Senator Chuck Schumer. A few years ago, in front of an audience of pro-choicers, he called out the names of Gorsuch and Kavanaugh explicitly, the two Trump-appointed justices, at whom he unleashed the following threat, and I quote, You have released the whirlwind, by hypothetically striking down Roe v. Wade, and you will pay the price. You won't know what hit you if you go forward with these awful decisions. End quote. And the payment seems to have come due. And the price, apparently, is Kavanaugh's life. To note, as a literary matter, Schumer's wording is wrong. Far be it from me to be a pedant, though you can't spell pedant without Dan, one doesn't release a whirlwind. He reaps it after first sowing it. It's a biblical illusion with which, unsurprisingly, Schumer is less than fluent. He might want to brush up on the passage in the book of Hosea, one of the minor prophets, for it appears as though Schumer is now the one doing the sowing and the reaping. In response to this thwarted assassination attempt, the legacy media have been predictably quiet. Unless you vary your intake of news with an occasional undogmatic source, like this, 
you're unlikely to have heard much about it. Just imagine a different scenario playing itself out. It can't be helped. Counterfactuals in these dark times can offer the best illumination. Imagine if it weren't Brett Kavanaugh, but the recently confirmed Justice Katanji Brown Jackson, whom the murderer was after. Imagine that the issue over which he was ready to kill and to die wasn't abortion, but affirmative action. Imagine that this right-wing nut arrived at her home, where her children and husband slept, and planned to break down her door and kill her. Would we hear about it then? Would the president mention it? Would our republic then be facing an existential threat? Would it perhaps be promoted from page A20 to A1 in the New York Times? I think so. Our second item, the January 6th Commission goes prime time. On Thursday evening, all the major news networks, excepting Fox, aired the first installment of the January 6th committee hearings. To note, this kind of programming, a congressional hearing, to which only the most dedicated of wonks watching C-SPAN reliably tune in, is normally reserved for daytime hours, hours during which your average American is hard at work and blissfully inattentive, beyond the idle chatter in his employee lounge or the stifled whispers by his water cooler, to politics. But this is no ordinary hearing, and this is no ordinary committee. In terms of their objective, the nine representatives by whom it's composed vary quite little. They all share a low opinion of President Trump, whose rumored resuscitation as a viable presidential candidate in 2024 is, to them, as grave a threat to this democracy as was the South's secession to Abraham Lincoln. They want to prevent this. The goal, above all, is to prevent his running again. And all of them regard the events of January 6th to have been equivalent to an insurrection, a coup of which, ultimately, Trump was the author. They want us to join in their belief, and it'll be through the medium of television that they seek to persuade us. Of the nine members, seven are Democrats. Most prominent among them is Adam Schiff, the California screenwriter-turned-lawyer by whom the groundless Trump-Russia collusion story was most creatively molded and fervently pushed. His credibility, in rather short order, and without much effort on his part, seems to have been restored, rehabilitated, and he stands before us yet again as the image of a sober and trustworthy statesman. The Democrat chair of the committee is Mississippi's Benny Thompson. The two Republicans, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, have become personae non grata in their own party, by whom, for their involvement in this process, they've been formally censured. Cheney, for whose father, Vice President Dick Cheney, the left still harbors blistering contempt, is the vice chair of the committee. It's a role by which all those sins attached to her detested last name, remember Halliburton and Iraq, have been suddenly, magically absolved. To the impartial observer, the purpose of the committee isn't perfectly clear. The riot of January 6th, 
about which we already know so much, occurred a full 18 months ago. Those implicated in the criminal activity of that infamous day have been imprisoned, in some cases under gratuitously harsh and inhumane conditions. To most of the film, we've already been exposed. With the audio, we've been, by and large, acquainted. The names of Ashley Babbitt and Brian Sicknick are not unfamiliar to us, and we've seen the transcript of Trump's speech at the Ellipse more than a few times. For what purpose, then, has this committee convened? The House of Representatives holds hearings for two reasons. One is legislative, the other is for oversight. The select committee seems unprepared to fulfill either of these roles. For what purpose, then, truly, are these hearings being held? To prove a link, a direct link, between the worst of the protesters, the riotous, lawless miscreants, and President Trump. The committee is going to attempt to demonstrate active coordination between the two. It's going to try to show that Trump, between the 4th of November, Election Day, and the 6th of January, orchestrated a coup d'etat. He did so, it'll claim, in order to maintain his grip on power, of which, with the results of the 2020 election, he was legally obliged to let go. Despite his exhortation to, quote, peacefully protest outside the Capitol, it's going to show that, in fact, he wanted the building stormed by his allies and by force, the certification of electors halted, and the vice president, Mike Pence, kidnapped and hanged. The trouble is, evidence for such a nefarious plot is scant. If it doesn't materialize over the course of this hearing, at the very least, the committee hopes Trump's good name will have been thoroughly sullied. As a political measure, this might be expedient. It might be useful. As a moral act, though, it's quite troublesome. Oh, and there's this. According to Axios, the committee has availed itself of the services of James Goldston, the widely celebrated broadcaster, pro producer, and documentarian by whom, in his role as president, ABC News has been led for the past seven years. I should note, since the British-born Goldston announced his retirement from that lofty post, not a full year has elapsed. And already he's found new work. Evidence, surely, of the robustness of this American economy. It's unclear if Goldston, an unannounced advisor to the January 6th committee, is also an uncompensated one. I suspect that he's being paid, and rather handsomely, for his patriotic contribution. And by whom, you ask? Well... By you. By me. By everyone out of whose paychecks our ravenous federal government takes bite after hungry bite. Never forget that we, the taxpayers, are paying for all this. All of it. All the time. The committee. The Hollywood advice. The primetime spectacle. All of it from our wallets.
Tell me, honestly, is our money being well spent? <laughs> A conversation for another time, perhaps. For now, we should note that Goldston, in his role as president of ABC News, quashed anchor Amy Robach's interview with Virginia Roberts, one of the women by whom the suicide Jeffrey Epstein was accused. You'll recall Miss Robach's, in an unguarded moment of candor in the presence of a hot mic, venting her frustration about this. The hearings, Hollywoodized by Mr. Goldston, are scheduled to carry on for another week. We'll have to wait and see what new information they divulge, and, with them, Trump's culpability. Our third item. Gun legislation moves through the House. In the wake of three mass shootings, the first in Buffalo, the second in Uvalde, and the third and most recent in Tulsa, the House of Representatives has passed gun legislation. It did so, unsurprisingly, along party lines, with only a few Republicans defecting in support of some components of the Democrat bill. The vote was 223 to 204 in its favor. H.R., or House Resolution 7910, was introduced to the House on the 31st of May. Its chief sponsor is Representative Jerry Nadler of New York. The other name by which it'll be known is the Protecting Our Kids Act. And how would it go about achieving that noble end? First, it would prohibit the sale of semi-automatic rifles and shotguns to persons under 21 years of age. For some clarification on the verbiage, by which a layman like me is often misled, a semi-automatic weapon simply refers to a gun out of which a single round is fired at each pull of the trigger. It is automatic in that it loads itself every time the trigger is released. Contrast this to the old-time revolutionary muskets, which were bolt-action rifles, requiring of their user a manual reload after each shot. Already, in this first section of the bill, we encounter a problem. It is the question of age, of maturity, of adulthood, a topic on which I'll dilate in another episode, perhaps in a ticklish topic. I think we all recognize the incongruity between the following two positions. First, an American is eligible to sign up for, or in a desperate hour, to be conscripted into the military at the age of 18. We expect of him, when he does, a grown man's willingness to protect our country and her interests domestically and abroad, for which the killing of an enemy is often required. To accomplish this task, a gun is not infrequently needed. It's often quite useful. And second, while deemed an adult for the purpose of filling out our ranks, manning our foxholes, and carrying out the will of our president, their commander-in-chief, his adolescence, as a civilian, persists. It'll be prolonged another three years. A man abroad, a boy at home. Is it fair to ship a young man, twenty years of age, off to some desolate, war-torn wasteland, order him to take out his, or our, enemy, risk his life in doing so, scar his conscience if he prevails, 
only to refuse him the ability to purchase a rifle upon his return stateside, where his young wife and child cry out in want of his protection. As a society, we must decide. When is adulthood reached? Is it at 16, the age to which many Democrats want the suffrage lowered? 8, the age at which many of those same people want sex education introduced at schools? 11, the age at which children should have the right to amend their gender? 21, the age at which alcohol can be legally purchased and consumed? 26, the age at which the prefrontal cortex stops growing? Or 30, the age at which a growing number of millennials finally move out of their parents' house. I digress. But this is an important point with which we, as a society, must grapple. The next section of the bill deals with the prevention of gun trafficking. The one after that with untraceable or ghost guns, those unstamped by a serial number. The fourth concerns itself with the safe storage and disposal of firearms, something on which the president's own son, Hunter Biden, might want to read up. He disposed of a firearm in the trash bin on the grounds of a public school. The fifth section, with the bump stock loophole, a modification on which many gun enthusiasts are keen, a bump stock is attached to the butt of a rifle. A shooter does this in order to increase the rapidity at which his rounds are fired. Recall, nearly five years ago, the shooting at the Route 91 Harvest Music Festival in Las Vegas, Nevada, by which 60 people were slain and another 400 injured. To carry out carnage on this scale, the shooter, of whose motives we still haven't an inkling, fixed bump stocks to his guns, enabling him to fire over 1,000 rounds from his 32nd floor Mandalay Hotel window. The final relevant section sought to limit magazine capacity. The bill was passed on the 8th of June and now finds itself in the Senate, through which it's unlikely to pass unscathed. In fact, it might be dead on arrival. The defection of 10 Republican senators would be needed for its passage. It'll be interesting to see if there is anything, the fortification of public schools, the enforcement of red flag laws, a greater focus on mental health, etc., over which the two sides can come to some agreement. And with that, we've reached my favorite segment, the quote of the week, words by which your entire life can, nay, probably will be changed. This week, I borrow from the great William Hazlitt, an English literary critic to whom only the Jove-like Samuel Johnson is superior. If you want to experience good writing at its finest, perspicacity at its keenest, and English at its most exalted, I highly recommend you spend some time with William Hazlitt an author, unfortunately, of whom we moderns know far too little. And so, with that, his quote, Every man, in his own opinion, 
forms an exception to the ordinary rules of morality. Again, every man, in his own opinion, forms an exception to the ordinary rules of morality. How true this is. Think of its applicability to your own life. There's a standard to which we hold everyone else, from which we feel ourselves deserving of exemption. No, that doesn't apply to me. Upon them, all the others, the severest commandments are laid down, to which, from our mountaintop view somewhere in the clouds uh, along the upon the summit of Sinai, we expect them faithfully to adhere. We alone transcend these rules. We alone can make our own values. It sounds like Hazlitt in this instance is anticipating the central theme, the central nihilistic theme of a one German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche. That concludes this week's concise recap. I hope that it was succinct and informative. I hope that in this brief 30 minutes of time, you were able to understand and gather more information than you could possibly get in seven days of the week. Now, if you found this information valuable, my presentation of it intelligible and enjoyable, please, I beg of you, subscribe to this channel, leave on it a five star rating, write a review if that's possible on the platform on which you are listening. Now, send me an email if you have any inquiries or you just want to chat or you want to recommend to me a quote. You can send any email to finnerinswake at gmail.com or you can visit me on any of those social sites of which everyone is so enthusiastic a frequenter. And with that, I bid you farewell from Finnerin's Wake. Show the other way. Show the other way. Show the other way. Show the other way.